0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We've spent the last three weeks looking at the high priestly prayer, which I believe the content of the the prayer really sets us up for um, what we're going to see today. We broke up the high priestly prayer into three three different sections because we see Jesus praying for himself and the results of what are about to happen with the cross. Then he prays for his immediate disciples, and then we see him praying for those that would become disciples through the disciples' ministry, right? And so kind of cleanly broke up for us in three different ways. And, and even in breaking it up, we see that the focus of Jesus's prayer um, at the beginning when he's praying for himself and the effectiveness of the cross is to pray for ultimately God's glory to be accomplished, right? And so we talked about The goodness of God being contained in his glory, and then us glorifying him by celebrating that glory. And so uh, Jesus is praying ultimately that God's goodness will become better known through the cross. And then we see, as he begins to pray for his immediate disciples, we're seeing Jesus praying for that eternal security and how he keeps us saved. Um, He keeps sanctifying us. And even though he's leaving us in the world, and we're susceptible to attack there, he wants us to be influential in the world, right? And so we talked about not withdrawing ourselves so much that we are um, unable to impact the world. We talked about not infiltrating ourselves so much that we're indistinguishable from the world. Instead, there's that, that medium ground where instead we are insulated within the world, that we are there, present, active, involved, but not being influenced by And then last week we saw the end of the high priestly prayer where uh, Jesus is praying for that observable unity in his people. That even though there's going to be denominational distinctives that will set us apart maybe on a Sunday morning in worship, that the overall characteristic trait of people who follow Jesus is to be a commitment to unity. And so we talked about being unified with individuals, right? We talked about being unified with people within our local church setting. And then we talked about as a group even seeking to be unified with the universal body of Christ, right, to, to where we can agree about the, the major things and find great unity in the things that we agree upon in regards to the gospel and the identity of Christ, the deity of Christ, those type of things. I challenged you last week from an application standpoint to, uh, to pursue unity, in any areas that you felt like there was disunity, right? I told you I had a situation in my life. I took steps to try to rectify that um, this week. So I would encourage you, again, to kind of sit back and and ponder and meditate and say, is there anybody who who I would describe as me uh, being disunified with, either because of something I've done or because of something they've done, and work to uh, repair that? All right, that brings us to John chapter 18 today. And we begin to see the narrative play out of Christ going to the cross. And it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, uh, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, he and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Our summary sentence for today. The events leading up to Jesus's arrest remind us that he is always in control when life is spiraling always working to grow rather than squelch our faith, and always willing to extend grace in our worst moments. The events leading up to Jesus' arrest remind us that he is always in control when life is spiraling, always working to grow rather than squelch our faith, and always willing to extend grace in our worst moments. For our kids, Jesus is always in control, always growing us, And always gracious. These events that we're going to see unfold in the coming uh, weeks—they have to happen because none of the wonderful things promised during Jesus's ministry would be possible without them, right? So sometimes when we when we maybe watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ, we get to the end of it and there's this. Overwhelming sense of guilt, sadness, sorrow, even though there's the inclusion of the resurrection there at the end, there's still this kind of overwhelming burden, maybe, that one feels, right? Because the bulk of the movie is all about the suffering of Christ, and there's this like little schmidgen of two or three minutes where the glorious resurrection happens, and then, then the credits, you know, kind of go. Um, and you, you kind of sit there and you see that, and, you, and, you, and you're almost, in some ways, wanting Christ to not have it happen to him, right? Like, like I, don't, I don't want these things to happen. I don't want him to go to the cross. And yet, what we see is that Christ has to go to the cross, right? Like, the events have to play out. Otherwise, there is no eternal life for us. Otherwise, there is no sending of the Holy Spirit who's going to be better than the presence of Jesus with us. There is no preparation of a place that he's gone to make for us. There is no return of Jesus that we can look forward to, Right? We could easily say that Jesus decides to, uh, or Jesus could have easily decided to call upon legions of angels, rescued him from the garden or rescued him off the cross. He could have gone back to be with his heavenly father, uh, but there would have been nobody to really send the Holy Spirit to. And then when he decided to come back, it would have been in all of his wrath, right? We've seen that in other passages, whether it was in Thessalonians or Revelation. When Jesus comes back and people are still in their sin, it's a traumatic event. Right? Like it's a devastating event. And so without the cross, none of these things that he has been promising to the disciples are possible. I want to encourage you as we work through these next couple of chapters to keep a close eye on who Jesus is in these final moments. Because it's in these final moments that he will either validate or invalidate all of the previous claims that he's been making. Right? Like he's been been laying this foundation of who he is and what to expect from him. And now it's time to see if he believes those things. John chapter 10, verse 17, a promise that he makes. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Right? So Jesus is talking about the fact that nobody takes his life. He lays it down. He takes it back up. And we are about to see that scenario play out. We're going to see that there is absolutely no contradiction in what Jesus promised could occur. And that's his willingness to lay down his, his life. Lordship or sovereignty is a, is, a, is a major key theme in this passage today. Um, what I want you to see is that he is the one doing the arresting not this group of people, right? It's in this scene that we see Jesus stepping forward to arrest sin and death with every step that he takes, right? He's the one doing the arresting, not this group that was sent into the the woods to come find him. He's arresting sin, he's arresting death, he is seizing control of those two enemies and he is going to conquer those two enemies. He's not a helpless victim, he's not a courageous martyr, He is a sovereign savior. And I think John writes in such a way to minimize the human liability so that we better see Jesus choosing these things himself, right? Our sin is ultimately responsible, right? But John is very careful to help us see that Jesus is submitting himself to God's plan that it's not the enemy thwarting God's plan, right? So humans are responsible from their sin standpoint, but, but the humans that are involved in this narrative playing out right here are ultimately not seen as the ones being in control of these events. It's Christ. The record of his last days should bring great encouragement to us who follow him in a world that at times appears to have no caring sovereign let me say that again, the record of his last days should bring encouragement to us who follow him in a world that at times appears to have no caring sovereign. Because when you look at these events playing out, it would be very easy to criticize and say that God has lost control of what's happening. We're going to see that Peter even thinks that Christ has lost control of what is happening right? And there's times in our life, there's circumstances that we'll go through, both personally, there are things that, that we may look at that are going on around the world and say, is God even aware of this? Is God in control of this? Right? It seems like constantly, year after year, there's something that, 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 that comes up that is supposed to cause us great anxiety, that, that, that this could revolutionize our future in a negative way. Right, going all the way back to Y2K in 2000 to what we're currently dealing with with the coronavirus. Like, like, We are in a culture that will pitch any and every opportunity to make it look like the world is spiraling out of control around us and that there is no purpose or no guidance or no authority overseeing all of this. And that's certainly what would happen here for the disciples as they look upon their Savior, their, their rabbi, who is now being seized, arrested, and will ultimately be killed could very easily look like things are completely out of control. But what we see, how we see Jesus responding in each of these events should bring us great encouragement that we serve a caring sovereign who is always in control of events, no matter how spiraling they look. Right? Um, Using that term spiraling, uh, in the education field, as teachers... We talk about the need for our students uh, to have some type of spiral review that takes place where concepts that have previously been taught, students are having opportunities to come back to those regularly and use those skills or use that knowledge so that it's not forgotten, right? Um, Right now, we're in the process of evaluating, reviewing our math curriculum, and we're looking at adopting a completely different math curriculum next year because we don't feel like there's enough built-in spiral review for a lot of the concepts that our kids need. So we're introducing new concepts, we're teaching the things that they need to know, but then we're coming back to the fact that, man, we're losing some things that, that they also s- still need to have that because they're not practicing it, because they're not using it, they're not retaining it as well, right? So we're looking for a math curriculum that, that has a little bit more built-in spiral review so that our kids aren't losing concepts that they need moving forward right? Um, that's true in regards to uh, God's Word and how it is written, and I think the concepts that, that, that the writers will come back to regularly, things that aren't necessarily new or fresh or uh, unlearned by us, but things that we need to be reminded of. You know, Peter talks in his letters, he says, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things. I know you know it, I know you've learned it before, I know it's not new information to you, but I feel like you have to be reminded of this regularly. If you're not, you may lose it, right? And so the concepts that we're going to look today pulling out of this passage are not necessarily new, but not necessarily things that you haven't heard before. Uh, but there's a, there's a spiral review that I think has to happen even in our teaching, things that we need to be drawn back to, things that we need to be reminded of. And so I want to help you see some of that today. All right, number one in our notes When disoriented, follow God because he is always in control. He's always sovereign. For our kids, God is always in control of what is happening in our life. So sometimes we are confronted with circumstances that we weren't prepared for, we weren't thinking about, um, didn't anticipate, and we can become disoriented spiritually a little bit with it. You know, even the uh, the greatest of faith heroes have gone through times in their life where the immediate reaction isn't to trust God and believe him. That there's, there's some gap there between what they're experiencing and what they are feeling before they finally come around to trusting and believing in God. Remember, we've talked all along in our, in our study of this gospel that we want to lessen the gap of time that it takes for us to believe Jesus when things come our way, right? Um, and so it's a reminder to us in this passage that when we become disoriented, we can follow God because he's always in control. That that never changes. For our kids, he's always in control of what's happening in our life. So looking back at John chapter 18, let's see an example of that in this passage. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You skip down. Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? I well, want you to see three things right here. Number one, Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly where he was going, which lets us know we don't have to question our circumstances, okay? We don't have to question our circumstances. So we're disoriented. We're trying to remind ourselves that we can keep following God in the midst of that disorientation because he's in control, he's sovereign. This passage helps remind us that we don't have to question our circumstances. God knows exactly where he's taking us, he knows exactly where he's leading us, right? He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised, right? You ever been in like a new area before? Maybe you've moved to a new area, you're driving around, and then you begin to realize, hey, I didn't know that this road went this way. I didn't know that this road came out right here, right? That, that's, not, that's not how God's circumstances and his orchestration of circumstances work, right? Like it's not, oh, I didn't know we were going to end up here if we chose this, this route, right? Jesus knows exactly where he's going in this narrative, which reminds us that God knows exactly where he's taking us to, right? We don't have to question our circumstances. He took them by way of the Kidron brook. Now, um, in my studies, like, commentators kept coming back to the idea and the fact here that, that this brook was very closely connected to the temple and the drainage system for the sacrifices that would be offered in the temple, that they would funnel that blood and funnel the, the gook that, that would come from the sacrifices, right? And it would funnel down into this ravine, oftentimes emptying in, into this brook, right? That's not a coincidence for Jesus as he is working himself towards the crucifixion, where he is to be our sacrificial lamb, to even through the night guide his disciples into a setting where Their mindset is going to be, as they're looking to make sure they're not stumbling and walking in the dark, hey, I know where we are, and I know what that stuff is, right? He's very intentional in where he leads them in preparation for the cross, right? But secondly, he took them to a familiar place, particularly to Judas. And I think John draws that attention for us so that we can better understand that Jesus is picking a place to be found not a place to hide, right? This is a place to be found, not a place to hide, right? It's a very familiar place. It's, it's where you would go if you were looking for Jesus. If you knew anything about Jesus, this is where you would go look for him first, maybe. And, and Jesus doesn't change the plans, right? He's already, he's already in, their, in their last supper setting, communicated, hey, this is gonna happen. Jesus is gonna portray right? He has let Judas know, hey, what you're about to go do, go do quickly. Like, go ahead and make this happen, right? And then Jesus told them, let's, let's get up and let's go from here. And remember, we talked about him saying, like, let's go make this happen. Let's go and face this head-on. We're not going to run from it, right? So he's, he's intentional. He knew exactly where he's going. He, he takes them in a way where he can, he can have a, a visual lesson going on around them at the Kidron Brook, he takes them to a familiar place so that Judas would know exactly where to find him, right? Jesus is not being hunted here. He is the ambush, right? Like he's the ambush. They think they're hunting Jesus, right? Jesus is hunting them, right? He's the one that's gonna do the arresting here, not them, right? The, the, the joke's on them. They, they think they're showing up. They think they're the ones that are in control and yet they find out and we've been set up, right? Like the enemy's been set up. The devil's been set up here, right? It's like Jurassic Park in the movie where they're, they're hunting the velociraptors, right? Like they think that they're the ones doing the hunting and then you kind of look around and you're like, oh no, like, like we're the ones that are being hunted right here, right? Like that, that's the kind of control that Jesus has in this setting. Like he's in the familiar place so that they can find him because he's the one that's going to the cross willfully and in submission, Right? He knew exactly where he was going. Number two, he knew exactly what was going to happen, right? It's not that his ambush fails or his plans failed. He wasn't expecting himself and his band of followers to overthrow the guards, and then Peter's attempts didn't work, and so now he's stuck and he's trapped, right? He's not that kind of hero whose plan fails. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and so therefore we don't have to feel anxious about our circumstances, right? He knew exactly where he was going. We don't question our circumstances. He knew exactly what was going to happen, so we don't have to feel anxious about our circumstances. Now, John doesn't go into the whole scene of him praying and and sweating the drops of blood and the agony of the, the prayer in the garden scene. He doesn't address it. But he also writes, and we told you this way back at the beginning, he writes with an understanding that his readers have a knowledge of that, right? So he's not saying that that's not important. He just knows, hey, you've already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I don't have to go into that. You understand that that took place, right? Jesus is sorrowful and burdened, but he's resolved. told you earlier today, it's not the, the pain that's crushing him. It's the payment part. Right? It's the part that he is going to have to be bearing the sins of the world, bearing the wrath of God on the cross that, that, that has him uh, being described as a man of sorrows. Right? And so um, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't try to steer clear of it. He went to a place that was familiar. We don't have to question our circumstances. We don't have to feel anxious about our circumstances. Number three, he knew exactly why everything was taking place too. He knew exactly why everything was taking place, which means we don't have to fight our circumstances. We don't have to fight our circumstances. Right? It says that Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. Therefore, he came forward and said to them, who do you seek? So he knows what's happening. Peter's the one who doesn't. right? So verse 10, Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. Jesus has to step in and say, "'Peter, put your sword away. "'I've got to drink this cup that the Father's given to me.'" Right? What Jesus is doing here, he's not fighting his circumstances as undesirable as they are, right? Like, it's not that that he is excited or thrilled or happy about having to be punished for our sin, right? He is embracing his circumstances, though. He's not fighting them. He's entrusting himself to his Father with his circumstances even though they're going to be difficult, right? And so it's a reminder to us that we don't fight our circumstances, we can't embrace them. Peter felt that Jesus had lost control and therefore he reacts rashly in the moment. But what Jesus reminds us here is that he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross, like Philippians 2 talks about. And while we will never bear anything remotely close to what Jesus bears, I think we have to remind ourselves in the way that Jesus reacts here that There'll be times where we have a cup that may seem too much for us to bear and that we need to remember that Jesus is controlling our destinies as much as he was controlling his own here. We can drink that cup and know that the contents have been prepared in love, right? That whatever God would have us go through, the promise is is that he works those things for our good. He works those things for our good. So when we're disoriented, we follow him. We keep following him because he's always in control. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And he knew exactly why it was going to happen. Right. So even when we don't know where we're going, right, we don't know what's going to happen. And then even as it starts to happen, we don't know why it's happening this way. We can trust that Jesus does. He's still in control. He's always in control. He knows where we're going. He knows why he's taking us there. And he knows what's going to happen when we get there. All right. When disoriented, keep following him. Number two, when doubting... Hope in God because he's always keeping you saved. When doubting, hope in God because he is always keeping you saved. For kids, God is always growing our faith with what is happening in our life. Right, His goal is to keep us saved because he's promised that eternal security to us. In John chapter 6, verse 37, a passage we've already studied in length. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Right? So He's completely focused on the fact that when He starts a good work, He finishes the good work. Nobody's lost. John chapter 10, verse 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I will give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? And so he's always, number one, going to put us in position to grow our faith, not squelch it. He's always going to put us in position to have our faith grow, not be discouraged. Look, look what plays out here in this scene. First, he's going to help his disciples see who's in control through the way the crowd responds to his answer or his identification as being Jesus. It says, Knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back, and fell to the ground. Now, the clip that we watched earlier from the Passion of the Christ doesn't show this at all, really. Um, I watched the clip from the Gospel of John movie, which came out like a year before this one, I think. Um, and the way they picture it is just kind of a, like a little bit of a stumbling back, like kind of tripping over each other. Um, some commentators try to say that Jesus kind of came out of the dark and surprised them with, like, I'm he. Like, and they're like, whoa, like I didn't see you there kind of a thing. Um, I think the way that John writes this is that it's more miraculous than some commentators and critics might try to portray here, right? The, the craziest of the scene is that these people are sprawled out on the ground, I believe, and they still get back up and try to arrest him. right? And I think John very, very clearly points out Judas was in the group that fell down, right? As a reminder to the disciples that would read this later, Reminder to the Christians that would still be kind of confused about man, Judas, he 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 pulled one over on Jesus, right? That John says, and Judas was in this group, right? Like Judas didn't have any control of this setting. Jesus is just talking here, identifying who he is, and it brings people to their knees, right? Brings them to their knees. And I said the 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 wordage, the Greek wordage for um, a band of soldiers. Uh, a, cohort, a cohort of soldiers probably means that between 600 and 1,000 men were present. Jesus graciously warns them that they are way in over their heads, right? That this is not going to be an arrest due to his weakness, that he's completely in control here, completely in control. Number two, he, he, number one, he always puts us in position to grow our faith. So he's he's orchestrating the event so the disciples can see, hey, these people have no power over Jesus. He just talks and they fall down, including Judas, right? Grow the faith here. Number two, he'll never put us in position to devastate our faith. He'll never put us in a position to devastate our faith. Look what he says in verse eight. Once he comes back and reiterates, I'm he, like, I already told you that. Why, why aren't you arresting me? Oh, that's right, because you fell down on the ground. Like, you have to get back up, right? So, Maybe some humor there even in Jesus saying, like, hey, we've already answered this question. You know, come arrest me. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom You gave me. I have lost not one. A couple of miracles and blessings here. First, it's a miracle that the mob spared his friends. It's really a miracle that they listen to Jesus here and they don't arrest the rest of this group. I mean, when's the last time you ever watched a movie where you have the sacrificial hero make a request to the bad guys, and they actually honor it, right? Like, hey, 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 you're actually, you're here for me. We know that, right? So take me, let my friends go, right? Sometimes the bad guy will say, yeah, 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 yeah." right? And then what do they do? Well, they go after the other friends, right? Uh, AJ and I were watching, or our family was watching, um, he-Man, Masters of the Universe movie last night. And and um, He-Man's plans don't go like he wanted them to. And Skeletor ends up overthrowing him and his, his little band of followers, right? So completely different than Jesus, because Jesus knew what was going to happen. He-Man didn't know what was going to happen, right? And he finds himself trapped. And He-Man says, Skeletor, you're here for me, right? Let these go. Don't harm them. You know the battle is between me and you, right? And so Skeletor's like, yeah, yeah, we'll do that, right? And so he bounds bounds He-Man, and He-Man leaves with him, right? And then later in the movie, he goes after his friends, and He-Man's like, whoa, you promised not to go after them. And what does Skeletor say? He says, I lied to you, right? Like, I'm going to go after your friends too. But what's happening here is Jesus makes a request, and they don't go after his friends, right? So there's, there's a miracle there that they listen to the one they're arresting, Right? You don't ever watch a cop show where they go get the bad guy and the bad guy says, Can, can you do this for me? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Right? Like you're not in control. You don't get to make requests when you've been captured, and yet they listen to Jesus. But it's a blessing that Jesus spared them. And here's why I think when down the road they do get arrested and they do get killed for their faith, that the promise of verse 9 hasn't failed. Right? So that promise in verse 9 says, Hey, Don't take my friends. Why? Jesus says, to fulfill the promise that not one of them will be lost, right? Well, they're they're gonna get arrested later and they're gonna get killed for it. And here's here's what I fully believe about this is that their faith without the resurrection was not ready for this type of trial. It wasn't ready, right? they are different people after the resurrection. And I think Jesus absolutely knew that. Right? He already knows that Peter's gonna deny him without really any pressure being applied, right? He's just sitting around a campfire, and it's like, you know Jesus? Nope, no, 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 no. no. I, don't, I don't know him. Never even been around him. Don't even know who you're talking about, right? Imagine Peter in shackles, right, with the threat of a, a cat of nine tails being whipped over his back with the threat of the cross before him. You think Peter's making it through that trial? no. None of them are, right? And I think this is this is such an important piece for us to see, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God promises that he will never allow us to be tempted in a way where we can't find victory. He won't allow it. He won't allow us to be put in a position that we can't overcome with his power. He, he won't allow it. And so, He, in his sovereignty, says, no, not right now. You're you're not ready. You're you're not ready for this. And it's not until after the resurrection that they are. And it's after the resurrection that Jesus says, all right, now, now you go. Now you go and you proclaim it loudly. You proclaim it everywhere. And I know, I know that you'll be arrested. I know you'll be beaten. And I know when you get out of it, you'll be rejoicing to be named with me amongst my sufferings, right? So this is, this is sovereignty at its, at its finest when Jesus says you can't take them because they're not ready for this and they won't be ready for this until they see me back alive. Then, right, then it's like, hey, you can bind me because I know what's on the other end, right? I know what's on the other end, right? You ever been on a, on a ride before, maybe as a young kid and you're like, am I gonna die if I go on this roller coaster, Right? Like, like there's something comforting to see people getting off the roller coaster at the end and you're like, well, these people are fine, right? Sometimes we even motiva- use it as motivation. Like I've done this before, like at Whitewater when our kids are like, eh, I don't wanna get on this ride. And I'm like, you see that little kid right there? Like four years younger than you. And they just rode it. Like, why won't you ride this? It's safe, right? Like you're not gonna get hurt. Like it's gonna be fun. When we see people getting off a ride, healthy, safe, they didn't die, right? Like it's like, okay, I can, I can get on this. Like, this is gonna be fun. I, I can enjoy this. The same for the disciples, right? They're like, hey, I can't go do this. Like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna die for Jesus just yet. But when you see him back from the dead, totally changes their perspective. Totally changes their perspective. When doubting, hope in God because he's always keeping you saved and he'll even protect you from things that would potentially devastate your faith, which ought to encourage us that whatever it is we're going through, he fully believes that our faith will come out on the other side. Fully believes that our faith will come out on the other side, that we can grow in our faith and not have it devastated. Number three, when discouraged, turn to God because he's always more gracious. When discouraged, turn to God because he's always more gracious. Particularly when we get discouraged or defeated in our own sin and failures, right? The, the, the wrong response to, if you ever sit down and watch the full Passion of the Christ, the wrong response, and what the enemy wants you to say is, he, I don't think he loves me like that, right? Like, like I'm too sinful, right? It, it certainly can't apply to me, right? And we miss, we miss the sin abounding and grace abounding all the more passage, the truth there, right? That, that it does apply to us, that, that he is praying for us right before he gets arrested, right before he goes to the cross. He's praying for us, praying for our faith, praying for our unity, praying for our uh, uh, sustaining salvation to make it to the end. For our kids, God is always willing to forgive us when we sin, no matter how bad it is, Gethsemane, the garden that we're in, and we know the name of it from the other Gospels. Gethsemane here represents Jesus's commitment to obey in ways that we cannot. Gethsemane represents Jesus's commitment to obey in ways that we cannot. I don't think it's by accident that this takes place in a garden because I think there's great symbolism in this garden picture. We know that Jesus is the better Adam or the second Adam. And so when we look at the experience of both in their garden setting, what do we see? Well, we see in Eden, Adam uh, succumbing to sin, right? Like he gives into it. In Gethsemane, Jesus overcame sin. In Eden, Adam is hiding. In Gethsemane, Jesus is boldly presenting himself, right? Adam, Adam's off in the dark, hiding in the bushes. I don't want any part of this, right? Jesus, knowing what's gonna happen, he steps forward and says, who are you looking for? Right? Like, I- I'm here. You can take me because I came to a place that was familiar. So I'm ready to go with you. In Eden, the sword was drawn. Right? Adam's on defense. Right? Like, excuses are flying. Right? And even as the whole scene plays out, what, what's the garden left with? It's left with fiery angels with swords that are guarding the entrance to it. In Gethsemane, the sword is sheathed. And so we see the symbolism here of how Jesus is a better Adam and how the the Garden of Gethsemane works to repair and fix what happened in the Garden of Eden. Gethsemane represents to us that Jesus is committed to obey in ways that we can't. So when we find ourselves mired in discouragement or guilt about our own sin, right, the enemy wants us to believe that the way out of that is to do better. Right, to, to have a better day or a better week or to to obey better. And what it ought to be drawing us to see is that Jesus obeys in ways that we can't. Right. So when we when we find ourselves in sin, the way out of that is to look to Jesus who's already obeyed for us. Not to think that we've got to pull ourselves out ourselves and fix it and do better. Instead it's it's at that moment where we should see Jesus in all of his glory saying, Thank you for being obedient, because I'm gonna keep doing this. I'm gonna keep failing at times right? Gethsemane represents Jesus' commitment to obey in ways that we can't, in ways that our representative Adam could not. He now represents us. He represents us in obedience, and that obedience applies to us. Number two, I believe Malchus represents Jesus' desire to show grace towards the worst sins. It's his willingness to show grace towards the worst sins sins. Jesus is merciful in the final moments. Now we don't see it here in this passage. But in Luke 22:51, we see Malchus's ear being healed. I think this is the only gospel where Peter's name is attached to the one who cut Malchus's ear off. And that's because most likely Peter is already dead when John writes his gospel so that there's no fear of somebody going and finding Peter and saying, we've been looking for you. We didn't know who it was in the dark. But now we know who cut Malchus's ear off, right? You're not allowed to do that, so we're going to arrest you. I think it's strategic that the other gospel writers just say, hey, somebody did this, and then it's only after Peter is dead that his name is attached to it. Um, but think about what's happening here. In his final moments on earth, Jesus is showing mercy to one who is there to kill him. Right Like, like Malchus deserves wrath here, but he enjoys grace instead. So, so I would want this to be a, a moment for you, for it to be an informative session about how much Jesus loves you and is willing to do for you, even in the midst of some of your greatest sins, because he is a gracious God, even to somebody who's not following him at the time. Imagine how all the more the grace that's shown to those of us who are his children, right and sometimes. We get, we get confused, and, 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 and we're disoriented, and we're discouraged, and we feel defeated, right? And, and we're not really sure where we stand with God for some reason, right? And, and this is that spiral review where we can say, you know what? Man, he's so gracious, and he, and he is for us, and he is working to grow our faith. I had the chance to sit down with one of my teachers um, who... Was, was interested in exploring um, working for a different principal. And, or no, sorry, somebody who's looking for a different job. And in conversations with this other principal, this principal said, I'd love to hire that person if she's available. And I went to this teacher and I said, hey, I'm gonna have a conversation with you. And it's probably not smart of me to do this because it means I could lose you and I don't wanna lose you. I said, but I'm having this conversation with you because I wanna encourage you with it because I know since last year, you've been uncertain where you stood with this principal because she had to teach the principal's kid and there was some issues in the classroom. And so she she had a hard year last year because she just wasn't sure where she stood with the principal. I said, I want you to know this principal would love the opportunity to hire you. And I said, if nothing comes of this conversation, I said, I believe it's valuable to you for you to know because you felt uncertain about where you stood with her to know where you stand with her, right? That's what I would want for us as followers of, of Christ, when we're feeling uncertain about where we stand with God because maybe we, we've, we've fallen into some stuff, we've made some mistakes, we look back on our week and we say, you know what, I did a, I did a real bad job of, of showing love and grace to my spouse or to my kids or to my coworkers. And, and we can get very mired in the discouragement of being a failure, right? And sometimes we, we lose sight of the graciousness of God. And I, to me, this is such a great picture of the grace where, where here's an individual who deserves wrath and we don't know if he gets saved or not. We don't know if he comes to, to Christ or not after this. We know that some of the centurions are kind of in awe as the crucifixion plays out. Surely this is the son of God, right? Like that's the only thing that makes sense now that I've seen it all play out. Maybe, maybe Malchus does come, but even if he doesn't, right? Tremendous grace shown right here where Jesus could have just said, you know what? You can, you can lose that ear because you're here to kill me, right? Instead he heals it. A gracious God towards a, a rebellious, enemy of his how much more grace does he show us as those who are his children all right spiral review time what what we learn about god in this passage that i want you to to see once again to be reminded of once again four things love sovereignty power and grace the love that he has for us the agony that he's willing to bear his willingness to bear it right he goes where he knows he'll be found He knows exactly what's going to happen. He submits himself to it. The sovereignty of God. He's in complete control of his captors. Complete control of those who were there to arrest him. The power of God is on display here. Specifically, I see it in the protection of the disciples. Right. This is the one case that I'm aware of where an appeal by the hero was made to the bad guy, don't hurt my friends, and they didn't hurt the friends. They didn't go after the friends. That's the power of God on display there, to preserve his disciples until they were ready to bear that trial. And then the grace of God, a wounded, rebellious sinner. I mean, think about what, what even may have been rushing through Jesus's mind, especially if he knows he's not gonna get saved. But even if he knows he's gonna get saved, just imagine what could have been rushing through Jesus's mind. I'm about to go to the cross you 're a sinner i 'm going to heal your ear right here before I go do that All right tremendous amount of grace that 's shown from an application standpoint i don 't want you to do anything this week except set aside some specific time to meditate on this and to celebrate it for how you 've seen this play out, particularly in your life. How have you seen god 's sovereignty, his love, his power, and his grace specifically in your life? Allow yourself to enjoy some Spiral Review this week. Allow yourself to enjoy some time of thinking back and meditating on God's goodness in your life and celebrating it. Don't just sit, listen today, and, and be done with this and move on. That, that's not where the Spiral Review takes effect, right? Most of the time we give, we give our students some type of packet of Spiral Review. Hey, go home and work on this because you're going to need it, right? So I'm telling you, go home and work on this because you're going to need it. Right, there's going to be times where you need to be reminded that God loves you. He is gracious towards you. He is sovereignly in control of everything that's going on, and he has the power to keep his promises, even when life looks like it's spiraling. Family worship questions this week. What are some ways that Jesus is like Adam but better? And who are some of the worst sinners and greatest sins that God forgives in the Bible? Both those questions will help, will help us better understand how we see God. In this passage, let's pray together. God, we love you because you love us. We thank you for loving us first. We thank you for loving us in spite of our sin. We thank you that it was when we were sinners that you died for us, not because we were trending upward, not because we were doing better, that when we were at our worst, you showed your best love towards us. You extended grace towards us. And God, we come now rejoicing over the fact that in relationship with you, we can, we can take great comfort in knowing that when we feel disoriented, we can keep following you because you know exactly where you're going, exactly why we're going there and what's gonna happen when we get there. We thank you that when we are um, discouraged, doubting, we can keep hoping in you, knowing that you are going to finish the good work you started in us. And Lord, we are so grateful and thankful that when, when we at times are, are mired in sin, that we can keep turning to you, knowing that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We thank you for those promises. We thank you for those truths. God, I pray that we wouldn't just know it in our heads. We would, we would know it experientially through our hearts. God, help us to keep turning and trusting in you and lessen the gap in the amount of time it takes for us to do so. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.